0: it's nine o'clock, but you guys got to fire up. Are you ready? All right. All right. Let's pass out some scriptures, fellas. If you don't have a Bible, raise your hand. These lovely gentlemen will be happy to give you one. Just raise your hand nice and high and they'll pass them out to you. Uh, We stand for the reading of the word of the Lord. We sit for the word of the teacher this morning. We're going to be in Ephesians chapter six. So if you turn there and stand, Ephesians chapter six. And then I'm going to ask you to hold your place in Ephesians chapter 6, and then also um, take John 14, John 14, Ephesians 6, John 14, Ephesians 6, John 14. We're undertaking our study of the armor of God. Where was that uh, The screenshot of the armor of God? Do we have that? No. Did somebody eat it? What happened? All right, all right. Ephesians chapter 6, we're going to pick up verse 14. Stand therefore, having girded your waist with truth. That's it. Now let's go to John 14. That was long, you're exhausted, aren't you? John 14. We're going to pick up at verse 6. Jesus said to him, let's read it together. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Let's go to John 14, verse 15. I'll read it. You can read along silently. Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments, and I will pray the Father, and he will give you another helper that he may abide with you forever. And everyone say these next four words, the Spirit of Truth. Whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you orphans. I will come to you. We're going to take a look at truth and that we would gird ourselves with truth. And so let's pray and ask God's blessing. Lord, as we take a look at your word this morning and we apply the armor of God, we come to see, even as it says in the King James version, girding our loins with truth and Lord, We want to know what that means. And so, Father, I ask that you would bless us as we study the armor of God, longing to apply it, that we would stand and withstand the wiles of the enemy, the attacks of the evil one, the one who comes to steal, kill and destroy, the father of lies and the author of deceit. So, God, help us that we would stand and withstand, that we would be at battle. Lord, help us to apply the armor of God in our daily lives. And I ask your blessing in the study of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, have a seat. Well, we've been studying the the, the epistle to the church at Ephesus. And the Apostle Paul's been going through this picture of truth and speaking to a church that is surrounded in a community of deceit and deception and corruption, uh, immorality, and 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 Paul is, is sharing with this church through this letter while he's at another location chained to two Roman guards. And as he's chained to these guards, he's writing this epistle to, to the church at Ephesus to encourage them. But one of the things he's doing is while he's sitting there looking at a Roman soldier, and, and I wish we had that. The, what happened to the, the uh, deal? It, okay, look on your bulletins then. I don't know. I, I don't know why it just disappeared. If you look on your bulletin, you see the picture of the Roman guard. Paul would be looking at this man, and he would be uh, assessing the picture of him. And he would making, he'd be making spiritual applications because he knows that we're at war. Jesus said, I didn't come to bring peace, but a sword. A sword is for war. He would say, I'd even turn father against son, mother against daughter. He, he, he realized that the truth was going to cause consequences of division. He knew it was going to be that way. In in our culture nowadays, we we cry out for this idea of tolerance. And and it seems that we're tolerant for anything other than the truth. But the amazing thing, if you think about tolerance, the truth is never tolerant of a lie. The truth is never tolerant of a lie. If you put two plus two equals three, you're going to get it wrong. But we have instructed our children in some regard that there's moral relativism, that, that truth is what you want it to be. That doesn't work. That doesn't work. Truth is a foundational aspect that is absolutely necessary if we're to have a society that will succeed. Period. And if we don't stand upon these truths, we will fall to the deception. There is a truth and there is a lie. And the author of lies is the one who comes out. And the Apostle Paul says to the church at Ephesus, looking at this Roman soldier, thank you. Looking at this Roman soldier, he looks and he says this, 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 this belt this belt of truth is the center theme of everything you're going to do as a soldier. It will hold your sword. It will keep your tunic in place. When battle comes and the scripture says, stand and gird your loins or gird yourself, it, it means take, take the tunic and wrap it into the belt so that your legs are free to run into battle. That's what he's saying. He he sees that every Roman soldier, when it's time for battle, he takes his tunic and he wraps it into his his belt. And he girds his loins. And at the front of, of this belt is an enormous uh, metal device that, that covers the very sensitive areas of the male body. Leave, leave it at that. And you want that covered when you're going into battle. When, when, and again, the only way I can really equate it is I've never really seen a Roman soldier other than the drawing you see here and, and depictions of people acting and such. But, but I look at even football players. They understand the need to protect that area of the human body. And so it says, gird your loins, gird your loins with the truth. Stand therefore, having girded your waist with the truth. And so the two pictures that Paul sees as he's talking to this Roman soldiers, he says, now, what is the belt for? And he says, it's a centerpiece of all that we have. It holds the weapon. It keeps all of the material together the breastplate comes across and it and it matches to the belt. And then when we're ready for battle, we take our tunic and we tuck it into our belt so that our legs are free to run into battle. And that's the girding aspect, to get ready for battle. What God is saying through, through the penmanship of the Apostle Paul, inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is He's saying to every believer, this is war, buckle up. There's no apathy in the body of Christ. There's no complacency in the body of Christ. There is an attack and there is a war for the minds of man and it deals with simply nothing other than the truth, period. And you fall to that, evil wins. The author of lies, the author of deception. If you're complacent and you say, well, you see it. You know, last night we were watching this this show, and we'd put it on, and the boys were sitting with me, and, and this man was going through it, and all of a sudden, he threw out this little just clip at the very end of a sentence talking about deception and applying it to the ministry. I go, whoa, back up the bus, and I backed it up, and I had my boys watch. I said, watch the subtle deception, and boom, it hit, and my, my son goes, yeah, I go, that happens all the time. It's a conditioning. It's a conditioning, it's a conditioning, it's a conditioning. And you start to believe it over time because you're not opening the word. You're not girding yourself with the truth. You're not spending time in the word of God. You're not spending time in prayer and you're conditioned. Think about the, the amount of information that's put into your skull in the course of a day. And we say, you know, we, we watch the failing school systems and we say, well, if the parents did a better job. Well, wait a minute. The schools have the kids for what, eight hours a day? They have more time with the kids than we do. But there's, there's no moral absolutes, it's relativism. We wonder why there's an implosion in the culture. And I'm not just talking, I'm, I'm talking private schools, public schools, you can do it all. And then when we remove the truth and we don't raise our children in the love and the admonition of the Lord where they don't see the Bible. I, I was raised my entire life never watching my mother or father ever once crack a Bible or pray, not once. My kids have seen me read, I pray with them every night. Or for them. And they're up against a battle for their minds. And the picture that's so clear is this idea of the loins. You know, you think about this. Why was it that God declared as the mark of his people would be circumcision? Because what he was declaring to the male portion of his people is that the future of this generation is going to be a mark of truth. This will, I want you to understand that the area of reproduction for your life is going to be in the, in the realm of your children. The Bible says, Raise your children in the love and the admonition of the Lord. Impart to them truth. Impart to them truth. The declaration that they are, are arrows, that, ch- that children are a blessing from the Lord. Blessed is a man whose quiver is full, that they're arrows that we shoot into a future that we'll never see. And the only way an arrow hits a target it was an, is that when that arrow is straight and true. And God is saying, Impart this to your children. There's... there's There's verse after verse after verse of of the declaration that you, parents, are stewards of the lives of your children. If your children don't turn out well, you can't turn to the public school and go, hey, God goes, I'm sorry, I didn't put the school in charge of your kids, I put you in charge of your kids. You're the one to oversee their equipping in the truth. You're the one who sits with them and imparts these truths into their lives. You're the one that teaches them the Ten Commandments. And how can you teach your kids something you yourself don't know? You've got to do that in their lives. And this is the call to it. When I I think about this idea, I I, I read this one commentator. He said, to stand firm against the enemy, gird yourself with a belt of truth. He said, for the Roman soldier, the girdle or belt was a leather apron-like piece that extended down to the thighs, protecting the lower abdomen and the genital areas. The soldier tucked his robe or tunic into it so that he could move quickly without encumbrance in the battle. The loins were often a metaphor for strength. Girding oneself has the idea of displaying power and courage. The main idea of a soldier girding his loins was that he was ready for vigorous battle. Paul's point in telling us to gird our loins with truth is that we cannot be ready to fight the enemy if we're not strong and ready with God's truth. The Bible says be prepared in season and out of season to give a reason for the faith or the hope that lies within you. You can't keep going back on the one verse you learned in in Sunday school, folks. The the psalmist said, I've hidden thy word in my heart that I might not sin against thee. What's the last verse you memorized? Enough said. Commentators will argue whether this is the idea of living a life of truth or standing upon the truth of God. And the reality is, for most of the commentators, and, and, and my belief is that it's both. Not only is your life to be true, but it's going to be based on the truth of Jesus. You'll, you'll be as true as Christ being present in your life. And so when you see this picture, you think, this is that idea of girding your loins with truth. And then, and then I would add this. The idea of, of our progeny or, or our future generation, that we, we raise our children in this understanding. You're accountable to God as stewards of their life and trusted to give an accounting to Him at the end of your life for how you raise the children entrusted to your care. And, and I, I, I marvel at that. Listen to this statement by one professor. He, he's since passed away. His name was Alan Bloom, and he was a best-selling author, and it was called uh, The Closing of the American Mind, and it was written in 1987. He wrote, There's one thing a professor can be absolutely certain of. Listen to this. Almost every student entering the university believes, or says he believes, that truth is relative. If this belief is put to the test, one can count on the student's reaction. They will be uncomprehending that anyone should regard the propositions as not self-evident astonishes them as though he were calling into question two plus two equals four. These are things you don't even think about. He goes on to point out that although these students may be varied in backgrounds and religious beliefs, they are unified in their allegiance to relativism and equality The danger they fear from those who hold to absolute truth is not error, but intolerance. Intolerance is a supreme virtue that our educational system has inculcated for many decades. Bloom says, the point is not to correct the mistakes and really be right. Rather, it is not to think you are right at all. Bloom, interestingly enough, was not a Christian. He couldn't even be labeled a fundamentalist. He was a Jewish philosopher at a secular university who pointed out the absurdity of intellectual relativism. It effectively shuts down rational discourse, education, and all attempts to improve society by resolving problems, but is firmly entrenched in our educational system and our society at large. You go to a college campus and you say, was it morally evil that Hitler murdered six million Jews? you'll be hard-pressed to get a yes. They'll struggle. Are you kidding me? You're you're telling me that, that they're wiping out our ambassadors and they're attacking our embassies over a movie? Are you kidding me? They're murdering. And the reality is, as we go through this picture, think about, here's a professor, his name's Peter Singer. And he's been called the most influential philosopher alive. He teaches ethics at Princeton University, the same university that was responsible for Jonathan Edwards for the third grade awake, or second great awakening in America. Probably the most preeminent preacher ever in the history of the United States, Princeton University. And Peter Singer is in charge. He teaches ethics at Princeton University, the foremost philosopher, most influential. And he's credited with starting the animal rights movement, PETA. For him, the notion of same-sex marriage is intellectual child's play. It has already been logically decided, and it's time to move on to to polyamory, which means multiple partners. Singer argues that any kind of fully consensual sex between two or 200 people is ethically fine. Bestiality is not wrong inherently in a moral sense. It's not wrong, says Singer, for parents to give birth to a child so they can intentionally kill them and transplant their organs into another child. And it would be ethically okay to kill one-year-olds with physical or mental disabilities. This man teaches ethics at the university where John Edwards was the founder. What is wrong? This is ridiculous. There are absolutes. There are absolutes. Reverse that. You you, you take your position. There are no moral absolutes. There are no absolutes. And then I would just ask you this question. Do you believe that? Absolutely. Think about it. It's illogical. It's ridiculous. But there are moral absolutes. How do we stand against this sort of blatant attack on morality, the attack on the Bible? How do we guard ourselves from falling into the moral relativism of tolerance in our degraded culture as it just continues to fall apart? Real simple. We gird ourselves with the truth of God's Word. We get ready for battle. And we give up the apathy and the complacency and we fight. We fight. I share this with you because one of the telling passages of Scripture that really hit me was when Jesus was arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. And he had walked the earth for three years, and he, no one ever loved like he loved. No one ever spoke like he spoke. When he spoke, things just changed. I mean, you can't read the words of Christ without your heart being moved. You just can't. Unless you're dead. His words embody truth. They're, they're, they're things that just touch us for life. And, and, and as he was arrested and he, and, and he was beaten, they brought him before Pilate, who was a procurate for the Roman government. And it says in John 18 that they led Jesus from Caiaphas to the praetorium, and it was early in the morning. But they themselves did not go into the praetorium, lest they should be defiled, but that they might eat the Passover. And Pilate then went out to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? And they answered and said to him, If he were not an evildoer, we would not have delivered him up to you. They don't give any evidence, they just label him. Then Pilate said to them, You take him and judge him according to your law. And therefore the Jews said to him, It is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. That the saying of Jesus might be fulfilled, which he spoke signifying what death he would die. Then Pilate entered the praetorium again, called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered, Through a swollen and bloodied face, might I add. He says, Are you speaking for yourself about this? Or did others tell you this concerning me? Pilate, is this a question you personally are inquiring because you want to know the truth? Or are you just doing someone's bidding? And Pilate answered and said, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you to me. What have you done? And Jesus answered through a swollen and bloodied face. My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight. So that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now my kingdom is not from here. Pilate therefore said to him, Are you a king then? I am always curious as to how Pilate said that. (laughs) What is truth? What is truth? One has given up the search for it. The other is apathetic to it. One is dearly inquiring. It all depends on your response. We just know what he said. What is truth? I don't know how he said it. How do you say it? Have you gotten tired of the scriptures in Christianity? Is that why you don't crack the Bible anymore? Are you one of Barna's research of of three quarters of evangelical Christians that don't believe that the Bible is inerrant? Are you one of three quarters of the evangelical Christians that don't believe there's any any moral absolutes? Have you given up your search for the truth? Are you one that just fits into the mold of where the world is going? Do you get your moral compass from the talk shows? How serious are you about his kingdom as he's the king of truth and that his kingdom is of the truth? How serious are you about that, Christian? For those of you who aren't believers, I would just ask you, do you, like Pilate, how do you ask that question? What is truth? Are you in a sincere search for the truth? Because today you'll find it. You will. How do I know that? Well, we read it earlier in John 14. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth. You know what's special about that verse? He didn't say, I am a way. He didn't say, I am a truth. He said, I am the truth. There's no way around that. There's no others. It's only Him. Ooh, that's awfully narrow. Truth is narrow. Truth is narrow. Two plus two is... Four people know that. Praise God. Two plus two is four. Do you believe that? You know why God gave us mathematics? To show us absolutes. This is a world of order and design. There are absolutes, not only physical, but moral absolutes. When he said, I am the way, the truth, the life, no man comes to the Father but by me. It's what C.S. Lewis said is a trilemma. You can only consider Jesus one of three things because he said this. You can't say that he was a good man or a moral philosopher. It doesn't work. He said, I am the way, the truth, the life. No man comes to the Father but by me, period. So based on his statement, you can only come to one of three conclusions. He was either a liar, he was either a lunatic, or he is God, period. You can't call him a good man. It doesn't work. Because he said, I'm the only way. I'm the Messiah. Period. And when he looked at Pilate and he said, and he declared to Pilate this idea that he is the king of, of, of this idea of truth. He was, For this cause he was born and he came into the world that he would bear witness to the truth and everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. When's the last time you heard the Lord speak to you through his word? When's the last time you had an intimate time in in the study of his word? When's the last time you spent time in prayer and heard God speak to your heart in truth? The things God's revealed to me in my times with him in prayer have been so significant and so powerful. And I've been deeply blessed. I'm touched by this idea of God's kingdom being a, a kingdom of truth. I'm touched by this idea that the foundation of a nation is developed in, in, in the children and instilling in them the truth. This idea that there are absolutes, not moral relativism. What has moral relativism done for us as a nation? It's imploded us. Look where we are. We're basing a foreign policy on apology. We're basing a foreign apology, or excuse me, we're basing a foreign policy on fear. We don't, we, we don't deal with this and the attacking of our embassies. We go and hunt down a man who made the most stupid movie I've ever seen in all my life, and we arrest him. Are we going to do that with every citizen who expresses some sort of video? I, I have, why didn't they arrest anyone when they took the Virgin Mary and put her in excrement with pornographic pictures all around? Where was the out, out, outcry then? Where was it? This is based on fear. And God hasn't given us a spirit of fear, but of power, love, and a sound mind. We are in decline because we have nothing to stand on. We have no truths to stand upon. We've removed them from our culture. Listen to this word. Listen. The nation's ground of consecration will become the ground of its judgment listen again the nations ground of consecration will become the ground of its judgment what do i mean by that tuesday was the 11th anniversary of the attack Upon our nation, 9 Remember that? It, it's, it's strange because I heard some firemen tell me that people came into the fire station asking on 9 11 why the flags were at half mast. Yes. We don't show it in the news anymore. The last time something like that happened in our nation was Pearl Harbor. We had people lined around the blocks to go to war. We took on two fascist countries, two, two enemies of truth, brought them to their knees, established democracies, and, and, and we, weren't, we, we, we were liberators. We left both nations intact, and we asked only for enough ground to bury our dead. Germany and Japan. 3,000 people died or more on 9-11 in New York City. Twin Towers came crashing down, crashing down. I remember that. I, I was been a senior pastor for a few short months, and I remember that Sunday the church was packed. Five months later it was back to normal. No revival, no change. The cry of all of our leaders was, We will rebuild, we will rebuild. Everyone say we. You know what's tragic about that? Nowhere in there was there the declaration of God, help us rebuild. We will rebuild. The day after 9-11, the Senate Majority Leader Tom Daschle stood in front of a joint session of of Congress and and, and he he read a verse to comfort the American people. And this is the verse he read as the Twin Towers had crumbled. He said, we take comfort in these words. The bricks have fallen down, but we will rebuild with hewn stones. The sycamores are cut down, but we will replace them with cedars. Sounds like good words. But for a biblically illiterate human being, he had no idea the context of what he was reading. He single-handedly placed judgment upon this nation by his declaration. It comes out of Isaiah chapter 9, verse 10. And, And it begins with, The Lord sent word against Jacob. And it has fallen on Israel because God was angry at their disobedience. All the people will know, Ephraim and the inhabitants of Samaria, who say in pride and arrogance of heart, we will rebuild. The bricks have fallen down, but we'll rebuild with hewn stones, God. The sycamores are cut down. We'll build with cedars. Therefore the Lord shall set up the adversaries of resin against him and spur his enemies on. Resin. The Muslim world. You just hit the hornet's nest, baby. Oh, pastor, you're reading too much into it. Am I really? Let's think about this. The nation's ground of consecration will become the ground of its judgment. Do you remember when Solomon dedicated the temple? That was the nation's ground of consecration. He dedicated the temple and and on the mercy seat between the two angels, the Shekinah glory of God poured down and filled the temple that the priest had to be removed. Do you remember that? Anyone? Euler? Yeah, okay, good. That was the nation's ground of consecration, and Solomon dedicated it to God, and God filled the center theme of all the nation. But then you know how God placed judgment? He destroyed the temple. The nation's ground of consecration will become the ground of its judgment. Hmm, that's heavy. There's only two nations on the face of the earth who have a covenant with God, and one is Israel and the other is the United States of America. Pastor, how can you say that? That's just not true. Really? I was a history major. I'll challenge you. Let's, let's do it. Let's go toe-to-toe. April 30th, 1789. April 30th, 1789. Interesting. You know what it was? it was? It was the inauguration of our first president of the United States of America, George Washington. April 30th, 1789. And they inaugurated him. Read his first inaugural address. Talk about consecration. And you know what's interesting is after he gave his inaugural address, it was resolved by both houses. It was resolved that after the oath, they said, shall have been administered to the president He attended by the vice president, members of the Senate, House of Representatives. They proceeded to St. Paul's Chapel to hear a divine service. The House quickly approved the same resolution. Once the presidential oath had been administered and the inaugural address delivered, according to the official congressional records, the president, vice president, the Senate, and the House of Representatives and company then proceeded to St. Paul's Chapel, where the divine service was performed by the chaplain of the Congress. Pretty cool. Let me share with you the prayer that Washington consecrated at St. Paul's Chapel. Such being the impression under which I have in obedience to public summons repaired to the present station, it would be peculiar, improper to omit in this first official act my fervent supplications that Almighty God who rules over the universe, who presides in the councils of nations, and whose providential aid can supply every human defect that his benediction may consecrate to the liberties and happiness of the people of the United States, a government instituted by themselves for these essential purposes and may enable every instrument employed in its administration to execute with success the functions allotted to this charge. And tendering this homage to the great author of every public and private good, I assure myself, that it expresses your sentiments not less than my own nor those of my fellow citizens at large, less than either. No people can be bound to acknowledge and adore the invisible hand of God which conducts the affairs of men more than the people of the United States. Every step by which they have advanced to the character of an independent nation seems to have been distinguished by some token of providential agency. And in the important revolution just accomplished in the system of their united government, the tranquil deliberations and voluntary consent of so many distinct communities from which the event has resulted cannot be compared with the means by which most governments have been established without some return of pious gratitude to God, along with a humble anticipation of the future blessings which then past seem to presage. These reflections arising out of the present crisis have forced themselves too strongly on my mind to be suppressed, the president said. You will join with me, I trust, in thinking that there are none under the influence of which the proceedings of a new and free government can more auspiciously commence than this consecration. We ought to be no less persuaded that the favorable smiles of heaven can never be expected on a nation that disregards the eternal rules of order and right which heaven itself has ordained. And since the preservation of sacred fire of liberty and the destiny of the republican model of government are justly considered as deeply, perhaps finally, staked of the experiment. And then finally he, re- he writes, or re- spoke, I shall take my present leave, but not without resorting once more to the benign, par- benign parent of the human race, And humble supplication that since he has been pleased to favor the American people with opportunities for deliberating in perfect tranquility and dispositions for deciding with unparalleled unanimity on a form of government for the security of their union and the advancement of their happiness, so his divine blessings may be equally conspicuous in the enlarged views, the temperate consultations, and the wise measures on which the success of this government must depend." So help me, God. It was consecrated, the nation, April 30th, 1789, St. Paul's Church. Could you imagine that? They were at the, the, the federal hall and they all walked together to this church. All the house members and the vice president, the president, and the, the, the Supreme Court justices, all gathered. The chaplain of the Senate led them in a sermon. Uh, George Washington Consecrated the nation to God as his first act. You think, well, so. Okay, so. So. So what? Well, I guess the part that gets me when I look at this is a nation's ground of consecration will become the ground of its judgment. Tom Daschle, in front of joint session of Congress, quoted Isaiah nine ten. The bricks have fallen down, but we will rebuild with hewn stones. The sycamores are cut down, but we will replace them with cedars. You can't remove the word of God from your school systems and your public buildings. Remove prayer from the schools. Murder seventy million babies. Change God's description of marriage. And expect God to bless you. God doesn't want to judge the United States. We're the ones calling for the judgment. We have our fist out at Him. What do you think about that? God wants to have mercy on us. He's patient. Quite literally, we should be wiped off the face of the earth. The... The ground of its consecration will become the ground of its judgment. God's telling us. He's judging us. You've abandoned the truth. He declares to Christians that they're apathetic, that they're complacent, that they compromise with darkness, that they they leave out key portions of Scripture for their self-serving of of other gods, of materialism, sins that they commit in secret, and the, the withholding of life that we don't stand in defense of the defenseless our failure to fulfill the call that God's placed on us. You know, he says in 2nd Chronicles 7:14, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray. I can ask for prayer every Sunday and we're still not going to fill it. Nobody gets it. But we're starting to. I didn't get it. I struggle with it. Listen, every Sunday afternoon after two services, I just want to sleep. But every Sunday night I come, I leave blessed. If my people who are called by my name. The nation's ground of consecration will become the ground of its judgment. St. Paul's church, the ground of the consecration. You know what's interesting about that church? Where do you think that the first inaugural address took place. We go, oh, Washington, D.C., the capital. Wait a minute, it was named after Washington. couldn't have been there. That wasn't to be built until much later. Where was our first government held? New York City. New York City. And after they went from the federal hall and they walked down to St. Paul's Church, St. Paul's Church was this beautiful church, had a big lot behind it that was owned by the church. A matter of fact, it still exists today. And there's a big, giant sycamore tree that had been there for over 100 years. Beautiful. And what had happened is over time, they sold that back lot. And it became key ground in New York City and it's where they built the Twin Towers. And when the Twin Towers came down, every building was annihilated or destroyed around it, save but for one building, the old stone church. And it was protected by the sycamore. The roots are in display today in a presentation. And in place of that sycamore tree, guess what they planted? A cedar. God's not messing around. Stand, therefore, having girded your waist with truth. Folks, we're in a lot of trouble. The nation's in jeopardy. The destruction of our country when we're looking at all the nations around us coming to attack us. We'd secured the peace, or we'd secured the war, now we're losing the peace. Our embassies are on fire. Our country is on the brink of financial disaster. And there's still empty seats in the church. were Were your neighbors busy today? Were your loved ones busy today? Were your kids busy today? This is our hope. How will they know unless someone tells them? If you're fearful... That dissipates in prayer. God does an amazing work in prayer. He changes lives, changes churches, changes nations. You know, Isaiah 9, when we read those heavy verses, and the people responded to the Lord in a time of judgment with pride and arrogance of heart some of you may be sitting here this morning going where are you coming from this is ridiculous is it can you murder 70 million babies and get away with it under the hand of God can you listen to your neighbors argue next door and not walk over there and say how can I help you Can you remain apathetic and silent as God's people and expect blessing? The armor of God is for war. Men, are you allowed to have those secret sins and still declare yourself a Christian and come every Sunday to church to appear one way before your family but in secret another? I say that to men. Men. It's equally true of the women and the children. God wants truth in our lives, internally and externally. And that comes when we fall in love with the truth. How do we do that? I close with this last portion. You see, Isaiah 9, verses 8 through 12 are heavy, but the blessing is verses 6 and 7 before you get to 8. And I didn't start there, but I'll finish there. Verse 6 says, I just want to pose this question to all of you this morning. How are you actively girding your waist with the truth? How are you equipping the next generation? How is God using you? What verses are you memorizing? What truths are you instilling in the next generation? What are we doing as Christians? If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray, I will heal their land. The twin towers have fallen. The old stone church is still there. God is speaking to his people. What are we going to do? Some of you go, this is heavy. I'm going to find a new church. (laughs) Fine. I'm okay with that. I've never been worried about attendance in all my life. May God bless you in your travels. What about the rest of us? Are you going to complain that there's not enough or nobody does enough? Are you going to ask God to strengthen you? Are you going to humble yourselves and pray? Are you going to seek the Lord while he may be found? Are you going to cry out to him? Are you going to ask God for revival in your heart and confess by repentance your apathy, your complacency, your compromise? And when I say your, I mean mine, ours. We all got it. This is tearing me up. I'm dealing with it just as much as you are. The last four weeks, God has just been ripping my heart out. Showing me all these areas that I need to give to Him. And I want to do it right. I'm 48. I think I'm past midlife. At least it feels that way. Because I'm picking up speed on the way down. But I want to finish well. I want to do it together with you now let's gird up because we got war. And let's take the truth out. Why are you afraid to speak it? You know why you're afraid? Because the enemy of your soul reminds you of your past. But there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Forget what is behind. Strive for, for what is ahead. Take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of you. Go and make disciples. Be aggressive. Know it, study it, preach it, live it. I would say live it, preach it. Amen? Amen. Let's pray, and I'm going to have the worship team come on up. I'm going to ask the prayer team to come on up, too, if you would.